On today's programme, a super Saturday, but do we need to proceed with caution? We talk to immunologist Kingston Mills. As the hospitality sector counts the cost of the pandemic, will business supports go far enough to save the industry? Jim Miley on the Unif- of the University's Association on fears that a hybrid leaving search will lead to chaos in allocating college places. Will the Southeast retain its search and rescue helicopter base? And two fingers to the people, a senior Fine Gael TD hits out at the Foreign Affairs Champagne Party. Good afternoon and welcome to Saturday with Katie Hannan. My panel today, Anne Rabbit, Minister of State in the Department of Health with Responsibility for Disabilities, David Cullinan, Sinn Féin Spokesperson on Health, Duncan Smith, Labour Spokesperson on Health, Transport and Communications, and I'll also be joined by Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, and Adrian Cummins, CEO of the Restaurants Association. You can text the programme on 51551, you can e- email us on saturday at rte.ie, or you can tweet to at Saturday RTE. Now, there is a definite demob happy air about the place today, and certainly that's the tone in the morning's uh, newspaper headlines. They're telling us it's a super Saturday, a new beginning. It's time to be ourselves again. Spring it on. Uh, Minister Anne Rabbit uh, coming to us in our Galway studio. The Taoiseach said last night that he didn't know if he'd ever looked forward to a spring like this one. Is that where your mind is at today? Absolutely, Katie. And it's a great um, Saturday. It is a super Saturday, um, definitely. And um, the news last night that the Taoiseach brought it was very, very welcome. And I think it it has given a lift of spirits completely. And it brings 2022 into a very good, bright horizons for us. um, And it gives a lift to the people that really, really need it. David Cullinan, are you feeling super Saturday today? (laughs) Well, I'm feeling pleased like everybody else. I think today is a good day and yesterday was a good day. I'm also very conscious that two years ago when the pandemic first struck, we had public health restrictions that we were told would be in place for a couple of weeks to flatten the curve. But we've had two very, very long years and obviously all of the public health measures in place had to be put in place. But my point is it has been very difficult. There's 9,000 families obviously that are grieving. We've had huge difficulties uh, for uh, families and for workers and for businesses and, and obviously it was a really difficult time period. But I'm very optimistic and I have been, I have to say, for the last couple of weeks and months when I was looking at hospitalisations that we can get on top of this virus and even though it's it's spreading at a, at a very difficult pace, the hospital weren't as difficult. So obviously it's a good day. Uh, I welcome that. Uh, People need that relief. People need to get their lives back. But I think we also need to be cautious and we need to ensure that we keep the public health infrastructure in place in relation to public health surveillance, testing, tracing, vaccines. All of that needs to be kept in place. We have to be cautious. But I think we can be optimistic and I see this, like many people will, as one of those moments of change. It's a change that we're coming out of what was a very difficult two years. And then as part of that process of change, we have to learn lessons from the pandemic and we have to make sure that that sense of solidarity that people showed that we're all in this together is now followed through into areas like housing, building better health services, dealing with the cost of living and so on. Uh, Duncan Smith, uh, you know, we, we, we had 681 days of restrictions. You have to celebrate the good days. Yeah, like my household, like many households up and down the country last night are talking about plans we can make now, delayed events that we can organise. And that's encouraging. And there's no doubting a real sense of positivity that's out there at at the moment. And and that's fantastic. we are moving into a new phase, as the teacher himself said, that the pandemic isn't over, that there could be twists and turns ahead. Uh, so 
it'll be a different approach in terms of how we deal with it. Uh, and again, what I'd like to see is the state supporting people in terms of having antigen tests at home. I think that's going to be a key part of uh, monitoring how the virus is spreading or if we are going to have future spikes. Uh, looking at getting FFP2 masks out to people, I know uh, an awful lot of people I've been speaking to in my group online and uh, over the last uh, 24 hours, they're still going to want to wear masks. They still there's this comfort and there's a safety in it. So the state's going to have a real role here uh, because this isn't over, uh, but it is far more hopeful and it is great that we are going to be able to do and organise and take part in things that we haven't been able to do for those 691 days. Okay, Kingston Mills, are you going to rain on our parade here today? <laughs> um, I was, like everybody else, I'm delighted that um, with the easing of the restrictions, we've had enough of this, quite frankly, all of us. Um, but I am a little surprised at the pace of which these restrictions have been eased, in particular around the COVID certs. We do know that vaccines are less effective against Omicron, but they three doses of the vaccines are are quite effective and of course the vaccines combined with previous infection could give a high level of immunity in the population. There's also the issue about um, people who have underlying medical conditions who mightn't respond so well to the vaccines and have been in the fear of their lives for the last two years, living cocooned. And these are sort of unforgotten or are the forgotten people in the, in, in, in the latest measures. Because I estimate, or you know, it's a rough estimate, that half the population has now been infected in Ireland. But the other half haven't. So they're still, um, you know, they, they'll have some benefit, some of them, um, from vaccinations, but those won't. So they're still at risk of getting infected. And they could end up in hospital, and if they have underlying medical conditions, they could die from this uh, infection. So I'm not being negative. And the other cloud on the horizon, unfortunately is that in the last few days we've heard about a new variant emerging called the BA2 in Denmark and in France and some other countries. So this is something that we have to be prepared for. And if we ease all restrictions now and um, you know don't, don't get prepare for something further, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, and that, that variant, uh, it's been called a sub-lineage of Omicron. Um, it's not a variant of concern yet, it's a variant of investigation in the UK. Yes, I, I had a look at the sequence of it this morning on the Stanford website and the significant changes from Omicron. It's a variant of Omicron. It's a subvariant. Omicron itself is called BA1 and this is called BA2. And luckily, most of the changes that have occurred, and there are 28 differences between Omicron and this variant in terms of the, of the, of the virus, um, are not in the, um, the, the, the important part of the spike protein, which is where the target of the, the protective antibodies are. So I would be confident that the, there won't be any further um, drop in efficacy of the vaccines against this. It looks like it's more transmissible because it's already become the dominant variant in Denmark. It's already superseded Omicron itself. Um, so, and it's been picked up in France and the UK. So I would imagine that it will um, um, become um, a significant variant in the future. Right. David, do you want yeah, to Yeah, listen, as sure as night follows day, we are going to see more ver- uh, variants emerge. Uh, we are going to see this virus mutate. Uh, we shouldn't panic every time we hear of a new variant. It obviously has to be investigated. But I think what it does demonstrate is that we have to deal with the global inequalities. And that's why the TRIPS waiver, for example, needs to be supported. We have to support developing countries in relation to access to vaccines. One of the strengths and one of the reasons why we're in a strong position is because of the heavy lifting that was done by people 
people right across the island, but equally the very strong uptake of vaccines. And if we want to protect ourselves against future strains, we have to not just make sure that people on this island are vaccinated, but people in developing countries are as well. What about and that's the why the notion of a people's vaccine uh, across uh, the world globally and global inequalities yes, indeed, need to be addressed. And, and Kingston Mills, you, you've written about this and spoken about this and um, how important vaccine equity is at this point in time. But just in relation to, to Kingston Mills' point there about the vaccine certs, he's surprised that we've decided to dump that. Do you think that that might, like it, it is going to undermine uh, the future vaccine programme as well, isn't it? There's going to be less incentive uh, for people to get their I, boosters. I hope it doesn't undermine it. And, you know, I think we've had very, very strong uptake because there has been strong leadership coming from people like Kingston and the medical and the scientific fraternity. But at the end of the day, what we did in Sinn Féin and others in opposition did, and we had a very difficult job in supporting public health measures but holding the government to account, we supported public health measures coming from public health experts. If their advice is that that COVID sort can come to an end, that's their advice. So we have to be consistent in relation to applying the public health okay. advice. But equally, of course, we have to be <laughs> vigilant. But I think that people have responded extremely well to the vaccine, and I suspect that they will continue to do so. Mm. And I would still encourage those who haven't been vaccinated to do so because I've seen at first hand myself people who have not been vaccinated in recent weeks getting COVID and really, really sick as a consequence. On, on that point, Duncan. Yeah, I think most people, the vast majority of people got the vaccine because they didn't want to get sick, not because they wanted to get into a restaurant or a pub. So, you know, I mean, as many people, I'm one of them. I haven't got my booster yet because I had COVID in November, so I had to wait the three months. So I'm counting down the days until I get my booster, until I, and so are many other thousands of people who've had it over the last uh, number of weeks with the Omicron variant. So I would hope that, uh, and I would trust that given everything the Irish people have done, how they viewed this pandemic from the start and how uh, positive they've been toward the vaccine programme, that that would continue, that it hasn't been on the basis of But what about that, a, that issue that, that Kingston, about the vulnerable people who have mm-hmm. been cocooning, minding themselves, now Katie, whatever hope they had, yeah I'll let you in in one second yeah. Mr. just to raise this point, whatever hope they had in terms of or whatever confidence they had in mm-hmm. going into you know spaces where there were other people now they no longer have that confidence that at least everyone in that room is vaccinated yeah, and look, this is something, that, again, I think the government have said they're going to keep all this under review and we're going to have to see how this uh, pandemic uh, uh, travels. Uh, but this has all taken us by surprise. We're going to have to see how the next couple of weeks go. And we are always uh, conscious of vulnerable people. We have been since the, since the start of this. And there are many people who are going to have anxiety and who are going to have to make uh, be made feel that uh, they are part of this return and this part of opening up. And that uh, if they don't want to go out, if they don't want to socialise, if they don't want to do things, that that's very understandable because the psychological impact of this pandemic is something that we're all really only going to feel as we move through 2022 oh. and beyond. OK. Minister, you want to get in there? And I suppose really, Katie, what I wanted to add to that was that was one of the reasons why um, the the issue around masks um, being kept in place in public transport and taxis and airports and the retail settings and public spaces and also in the likes of the hairdressers, travel agents uh, and customer facing roles is actually to encourage people that wish to come out into public spaces that there is a level of protection still there. Not every layer of society has opened up that, that masks aren't completely gone. 
and, and it's just to give that reassurance to people because you don't have to remove your mask if you want to come out. You, you can still wear a mask. It's not that you must remove it. So it's that participation as well because a lot of people are going to be very anxious about participating and getting involved again and we need to support and encourage people um, to, to that normal way of life. OK, and what about people, uh, Minister, who are anxious about going back into their workplace? Uh, we heard Leo Varadkar confirming yesterday that if your contract requires you to work <laughs> in a particular location that you're con- you, you are contractually obliged to, to do that and that there may be a lot of very awkward conversations with employees now from next week who want to continue to work from home but they have no legal right to do so now. And I suppose really that's that's where the conversation needs to be between the employer and the employee. Well, I do know that a memo went to Cabinet um, this week in, in relation to, to remote working, but at the moment it, there is no underlying basis there. So employers and employees need to have that conversation. When can the, I know we know that this legislation is on the way. When can we expect to see that enacted? And a lot of people will be waiting and, and hoping to see that. It's one of the priority pieces of legislation. I know that's going to be prioritised um, in this in this first two sessions of the Dáil, Katie, um, because we see the value of remote working. We see that the, the balance, the work-life balance that's created. But from a disability point of view, Katie, as well, I also have seen the, the number of people who have welcomed it from a disability uh, opportunity to be able to work close to home where transport could have been an issue, where accommodation might have been an issue, that, that the piece of working in a digital hub has been really embraced by persons with disabilities. Okay. So I'd be very anxious to see this legislation progressing as quickly as possible. OK, uh, David, you want to get in? Yeah, and I think I'm on the same page as the Minister on this one, and I'm sure Duncan is as well. If there is cross-party consensus from across government and opposition opposition we, that we this needs this to be done, done. I think we can get it done quickly. And, you know, for people, this will be about choice. Uh, we should encourage people where they want to work from home, where it's possible, obviously, to do it. And obviously, for some people, it's a hybrid version where they might have some element of coming to work, some element of staying at home. And it's 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 really important that we make this a permanent feature. So I hope that the legislation the Minister is talking about can actually be done very quickly and we'll certainly facilitate it. On, on the masks, uh, while I have you there, Kingston, yeah. um, I'm just conscious, like, say we've big sporting events like big rugby match tomorrow the the monster and the wasps should everyone going to that match now wear a mask tomorrow absolutely i mean there's still circulating virus at a very high level in the community i mean we're we're saying there's 10,000 cases a day still but there's vastly more than 10,000 because that's the number we're detecting so there's 20 to 30,000 a day so a lot of people are still infected and still have the potential to transmit it especially again coming back to the vulnerable people and the older people who can can get still get a very serious illness with this with this variants so wearing masks but also on the COVID search just coming back to that I mean I really do think that it was a mistake to drop the COVID certs because there is no doubt that the uptake of the vaccine in the younger population has been poor. I mean, the uptake of the booster vaccine I'm talking about because we, we know that two doses is not sufficient now with the Omicron variant to protect, whereas three doses is pretty effective, at least in the short term. So I would be very much, um, um, I'm very surprised that it's been dropped and I, I think that they may come to regret it. In just in relation to that and the chil- the, the vaccine in, among the children's cohort, there's, there seems to be very slow uptake there. Again, I have uh, so far just 111,800 children uh, between the ages of 5 and 11 have registered for that vaccine and that's out of a possible 480,000. So... Um, there's, yeah, there's natural reluctance from parents and guardians to have their children vaccinated because it's a concern um, and, you know, no vaccine is free of side effects and, and, and COVID vaccines have side effects, most of which are, 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 are minor. 
but you know there can be major side effects as well so I understand the re- reluctance but you also have to um, weigh up that against the, the risks of getting infected in most children it's minor it's a very transient infection they'll recover very quickly but in a small number it can be severe so I think you know on balance the, 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 the risks of the infection are much worse than the ri- risk of the vaccine and if you look at the numbers of cases in the last week in Ireland they're going down in all ca- cohorts apart from children so they're actually going up still in under fours and the four to 12 age group. And that's a direct reflection of the fact that that is the group that has the least or no vaccine. And that's in the, the, the Neffet letter indeed uh, that, that was sent to government yesterday that uh, that is where there is some concern that we may still see an increase. We will see it. And what's going to happen now as the numbers have dropped further and further in the older population and even in the middle age group, um, it will still increase in, and there's no protection at all um, apart from those that are previously been infected in the under four and in the four to 12 year old group. Yeah, and I'm conscious of teachers going back into classrooms and school children going back into classrooms on Monday. And, you know, we might have had a super Saturday, but nothing much has changed for them. No. Uh, and and just finally on the antigen testing then. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was it, it was nearly a year ago when I was part of the Mark Ferguson group um, that p- proposed the use of antigen testing broadly in, in, in workplaces and, in, and for access to entertainment, etc. And it was ignored largely for six months. And then suddenly the, the, the people spoke with their feet because they actually went out and bought <laughs> the antigen tests themselves and they used them. And then the Mary Horgan group that I was also member of, um, you know, put in place the implementation policies for that. And then it was it's embraced. And so now I think that everybody in the country is using antigen tests correctly as a means of going to events and even going to work um, safely. So I think there's a huge place for antigen tests in a safer return to activity over the coming weeks and months. Duncan Smith. They are still too expensive, though. I mean, uh, we're looking at keeping this virus down down and suppressed in the coming months people on low incomes people on social welfare payments they just can't afford a regular antigen testing regime in their own households um, and, and that's something where the state need to actually step in um, because this is going to be a key pillar of our response through 2022 and if I could just make one point on the hybrid working model as well which is something we all support there's there's actual climate reasons for this as well we have mm-hmm. massive transport problems and uh, commuting problems in our major cities uh, I live in a commuting uh, uh, constituency in Fingal uh, and we need where people are able to and able to do it comfortably to be able to work from home uh, but it can't be difficult conversations with employer employees it has to be put down legislation and we have to be supporting the workers here yeah um, minister in relation to the antigen tests as uh, you know subsidies you'd have to agree that this this surely should be a priority now um, I, I, I genuinely, I've always believed in the role of antigen, Katie, and I think we've seen really fruitful what it has done over the last number of weeks and months, to be quite honest with you. Um, yes, I would be supportive of it in a more formalised mannerism of supporting people definitely um, where we're working with vulnerable groups, whether it's in the disability, whether it's in the nursing homes. Um, we, and I know that Minister Butler is doing an awful lot of work in supporting the nursing home sector in relation to it. But for wider society, I take totally on board um, what um, Duncan is after saying there. And do you think there'll be any moves in it, though? I still think it's a conversation that Minister Donnelly is very much participating in. Uh, David Cullinan. 
Well, listen, if you look at the success of the vaccine rollout and also PCR testing, the fact that they were free and universally available made sure that it was very successful. And as we transition now from one phase of managing this pandemic to essentially maybe it becoming an epidemic or endemic, whatever phrase uh, is is appropriate, um, obviously there needs to be an element of testing remained in place. And we all know antigen testing is going to be a permanent feature. And as Kingston said, people voted with their own feet. They were ahead of the government. They were using antigen test long before the government uh, accepted it as a formal part of the process and they should be freely available. We should uh, learn the lessons that making uh, vital services freely and universally available is good for people's public health. It deals with any economic blockages that might be in place and any inequalities. And by the way, I would make that point as well about the wider health service that you know now is the time to have a conversation about an Irish national health service free at the point of delivery that treats patients fairly and reduces waiting lists. But in relation to Anderson tests, the government came very late to it. Now that they have arrived and it formally okay. been part of it, they should be free. Okay, it's important also to reassure people that PCR testing is still in place uh, and there is still um, regular testing taking place in our long-term residential setting. So it's not like we're removing all supports. Supports are still there in relation to PCR testing and testing in in regular um, long-term residential settings. Okay, a couple of texts coming in. Um, Today's a great day for Ireland after two very tough years, but I hope that the government did not rush into making this too quickly. The figures could rise again and hopefully we won't be back to where we were. That's from Ray Clear in Kilkenny. And uh, Jack, in turn, you were telling us that one of the reasons for the low uptake by young people to get the booster shot is so many that many thousands contracted COVID pre-Christmas and cannot get a booster for three months. And that, of course, will be there will have to be a a very significant booster campaign once the Omicron uh, wave uh, cases are are eligible to get that booster. I want to go now, though, and bring in uh, Adrian Common, CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Uh, Good afternoon, Adrian. Good afternoon, Katie. Uh, Adrian, you were at um, a meeting with the Thornishta, Leo Varadkar, last night to discuss the implications of uh, this this new... uh, um, a, a dispensation, if we call it that, uh, for your industry. Were you happy with what you heard? Well, we had a very engaging uh, conversation with the Thornish last night uh, around uh, the business supports for hospitality. Today is a great day for hospitality, but we're now looking into the future around the recovery for hospitality. 20,000 businesses that have been economically flattened in the last two years, and nearly 140,000 jobs there at the moment. We've lost nearly 60,000 jobs. We need to build that back up. But in, looking from now into the future for how do we do how do we have a, a, a recovery mechanism? It's about making sure these, these businesses were viable in 2019. Currently, they're being supported by the government. We welcome that. We need the Employment Wage Supplement Scheme extended for two months because we've lost two months already when it was uh, initially going to be phased out. Uh, we're only getting one more month of that. And what did the Thornish say when you asked for the extra month there? Well, we've, we've put in a number of requests into the Thornish and obviously uh, finance will have to be involved in this as well. Uh, and the other major issue that's facing our sector is the tax warehousing uh, that means that uh, taxes that were due for 2019 were wa- warehoused into the future. And that, that, that means that at the end of this year and to our beginning of 2023, these, these taxes are now due with interest. And that's where you have these businesses. And if you take a small coffee shop, for example, they've probably built up about €100,000 worth of debt between landlords, tax, suppliers over the last two years. 
that's a, that's an example of a mm. small business. Now you can imagine now what the larger businesses are are looking like when it comes to debt. We need to restructure that debt, and we we need to do it in a viable way that everybody wins here, that the taxpayer wins, that the businesses are are, are sustained, are sustained, and that we have an a, a, uh, an opportunity here to keep employment and create more employment into the future. So that's our mission now over the next number of weeks ahead. It's about the viability of our industry, a plan for that, and and making sure that we can sustain as many businesses as possible as those supports start to wane out. And would you be worried about uh, insolvencies now, as, as as you say, as those supports fall away? Yes, and I think, uh, well, this, this, the, the data shows that we've had very little insolvencies because of the supports the government has given us. Now, it has been excellent with the supports the government has given us. We acknowledge that. But we need to make sure we manage our way out of this properly and with a structured way. We cannot have this thing, this day of reckoning, which was reported on a number of weeks ago, that they expect thousands of businesses go to the wall and nearly 300,000 jobs to go uh, over the next number of months. We cannot allow, allow that to happen across all sectors. That's not just in hospitality. It's in retail. The, the, the sectors that have been worst hit during, during COVID. Uh, Minister, do you want to respond to that for me? I mean, do you think that they, they will get a good hearing? Absolutely, and I and I want to compliment Adrian on the work that he has done over the last two years in representing his industry and actually and informing all of us elected representatives uh, of, of the need to be there to, to, to support. But I also want to recognise that the work that um, the Department of Finance and Power have put into supporting the businesses uh, and to be fair to the Tónishta and his team, at all times I do think he has been more than willing to listen and participate and was welcome to hear that that meeting took place last night. Um, while today is a great day, there is a lot of planning to do there, and it's important also Katie to say at all times government has said we were never going to have businesses fall off a cliff edge and, and I, I clearly believe in that so I do believe that there will be um, more talks taking place um, with the relevant departments to ensure that that doesn't happen what we really do want to ensure is that now that we are in that recovery opening up period that all businesses open up and I do take on board exactly what Eri Dreen is saying in relation to the tax warehousing that is a significant issue that needs addressing and it needs a proper roadmap because that's a lot of issues that the businesses are very fearful of from and also from the point of view that they're creditors. So they need to have a plan for that and I would be very supportive of it. And then what about this long-term plan? Um, Adrian, was this, and we, we, it was mentioned at the briefing last night, mm. but what was, was there much said about that at your briefing or your meeting last night? Yes, the, the representatives from the different industries that was on the call with Thonish asked for what is the long-term plan for living with COVID. Today was a great day and then we hear today there's a potential new variant and we're not, you know, we expect that there will be variants coming down down the track but we cannot have another scenario where we have to shut down parts of the, the society and, and the economy uh, for months on end. We have to have a plan for the future. Is that around reinforcing our health system? Is that around ventilation? And I'm publicly. And was there discussions about ventilation? Because I, I, again, I, I think a lot of people are astonished that we're still we're two years down the line here, and there isn't clean air legislation or, or, or regulation in relation to the hospitality sector in particular. Well, can I? I want to be very clear here now, Katie. We're up for a discussion around ventilation, but we need a task force that is with the experts around the table, like for 
antigen testing which was put in place. Now, it took a long time to get it in place, but when it came in place, it was the right thing to do. We need that now established, a ventilation task force for all parts of the, of, of, of the economy, and specifically around hospitality. And if it means that we have to introduce extra capital expenditure, we will look at that, but that will have to be supported. Maybe it's a European-wide effort that has to be done or looked at it as well for this. But ventilation, to keep businesses fully open, that has to be our, our, our focus now into the future. Um, David Cullinan. Yeah, obviously today is a very good day for the hospitality sector and you know the first chance I get I certainly will be frequenting one of the many excellent restaurants in Waterford and I would encourage people to support the hospitality sector in the time ahead. But Adrian raises some very interesting points and, and valid points in relation to the warehousing of debt. Obviously some businesses will be slower to recover so we need very focused plans for all of the, those uh, sectors as well. And then we do need again to learn lessons in relation to uh, clean air ventilation because airborne viruses come and go there will be more as we know and I think one of the things that we have to make sure is that we really learn the lessons of the value of, of, of good ventilation good air quality not just in uh, hospitality settings but also in workplaces and schools and so on so we know there's huge lessons to be learned a lot of work to be done we have to roll up our sleeves as uh, politicians to make sure that we deliver uh, but we also should encourage people to avail where they can in a safe way of the opening up of hospitality support that sector, get people back to work uh, and that's what needs to be done. Um, Taoiseach uh, Michal Martin confirmed this week, Duncan Smith, that there will be what he was referring to as an evaluation of the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what kind of format should that take in your view? I think it should take multiple formats, uh, to be honest. I, I think um, I mean, myself and David sat on the COVID committee for example, that reported in autumn 2020 and the first recommendation of that was that there be a public inquiry into what happened in our nursing home sector. Uh, the second recommendation uh, was that uh, we would have a look at the impact of privatisation on our nursing home sector. So they need to be ha- that needs to happen. Um, there are other elements that I'd like to see strong investigations on and analysis of, such as uh, what happened in autumn uh, 2021 in the build-up to the, uh, the the terrible wave that struck uh, December, January and February 2022. Um, but there are other elements um, that w- will need to be examined and analysed that I think we'll have positive results on in terms of how our health service responded and how our frontline workers responded. Um, so, you know, we don't want a long drawn out uh, inquiry uh, that's going to cost millions and millions and millions because there will be good learnings from this uh, but there are elements that are going to need public inquiries such as what happened in our nursing homes uh, and that's something we're going to see movement on, need to see movement on uh, pretty soon. And at, at an Oireachtas uh, committee level is that is that where you think this would best be well, the Oireachtas actually, by the way, Sinn Féin uh, proposed or brought a motion forward to the Oireachtas last year in relation to the need for a non-statutory public inquiry into what happened in nursing homes. A SCALI-type investigation mm. that we had, for example, with cervical checks. So I think there is agreement across the Oireachtas that we don't want long, drawn-out public inquiries. They yeah. need to be non-statutory. They have to be time-limited. They can't cost a huge amount, but we need to learn lessons. But we also need, as 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 was said, to look at where mistakes were made, where there was bad planning, indecision, poor communication, but also where there was good work done as well. And we know that many people in the HSE, people in testing and tracing, uh, public health scientists, public health de- departments, huge efforts huge uh, strides forward were made in those areas. Let's not lose all of that expertise and the learning that was built up. Okay. Okay, I'll take a break there, but we'll be talking about the pandemic bonus after these. Saturday with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. 
And you're welcome back. And if I can put to you, um, Minister Anne Rabbit, has the government made a rod for its own back by announcing this €1,000 bonus for some frontline healthcare workers? Perhaps it has, Katie. But it is done with really... um, when, when you look at it, uh, it was done in, with really good intentions, which was to reward risk. It was to acknowledge the risk of staff that went in on a daily basis to support people in their hospitals, um, in ICUs, where they had to put on the gowns and they had to keep people alive. And it's in that context, be it the ambulance workers, the, um, the army as well, that helped with it. It's in that context that the, that the government wanted to acknowledge financial reward um, to the people who did it. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, but then you see you, you, you go to family carers and many of them donned gowns as well uh, to keep uh, their loved ones alive. And uh, they're not going to receive this, this, this pandemic bonus. Would you, do you agree with the government's position on that? See, it doesn't, like, by no manner of means does it cover everybody. It does not. And I would be the first person that will say that, Katie. It doesn't, by no manner of means. But but the whole intention of it was, it was people that were going into a clinical setting um, where there was risk over effort. And I've spoke to Minister Donnelly at nauseam about this because I, I, I do take on board exactly what you're saying in relation um, to carers, where services were closed for a long number of months, where there was no access to a respite, where day services were stood down. But it's important also to understand when data services were stood down, it was so that the staff could be redeployed to keep people safe in their long-term residential uh, spaces. But the payment element has been targeted those working in clinical settings in recognition of the fact that they were working in environments where COVID was definitely present and their increased risk associated with that. And it's on that basis um, that the the Cabinet made that decision. Well, on that basis then, though, and you'll know this, uh, Minister, the National Federation of Voluntary Service Providers, and these are the people now that provide support to people with intellectual disabilities and their families. We're talking about 26,000 people being supported in this sector. They uh, are looking for clarification now that their frontline staff in these services will receive this bonus payment in recognition of the work that they did in settings where there would have been COVID. Can you give them that guarantee today? I would like to see them get that payment, Katie. I am actually fighting for that to happen um, because I do see exactly, as I said to you a few seconds ago, is that is exactly where the day services were closed so as the staff could be redeployed to ensure that our most vulnerable in their settings um, were protected. And it's important to recognise as well that, that in some cases I have over 2,300 um, people in congregated settings. So it isn't like that there were just in small houses. There is a long lot number of people as well in a congregated setting environment. Um, so people, they did put on the gowns as well in the disability sector and that needs to be recognised. And are we talking about both residential and daycare services now that, uh, that you feel are... are um, the staff be? were deployed. The staff were deployed, Katie. It's important to understand that, that the staff were moved out of their day settings. So as in order to ensure um, that the people in the long-term residential... See, there was COVID, you see, and um, family people, people in their own environment. We had to cover um, sickness. We had to cover leave. We had to ensure um, that the, the, the people in long-term residential care settings were protected. 
needed and people from the day services went in to ensure that that happened. I've spoken um, with Alison Harnett yesterday um, from the National Federation of Voluntary Providers uh, and um, I cannot see that why they wouldn't be recognised in the same light uh, as their colleagues would have been in other long-term residential settings, be it in the HSC or in mental health or in nursing homes. Okay, would that give you reassurance, Duncan Smith? Yeah, yeah, I got some reassurance from that and hopefully it's seen through. But there are other workers in the health service that need uh, clarity here. We have contract cleaners, people who've cleaned ICU beds to make sure they're ready. We have uh, GP nurses and receptionists, the nurses and receptionists who are still on the front line in terms of the vaccination rollout. If people like that aren't included, then we're at nothing with this. I know it was brought in with good faith, but that's all the more reason to get it right. But should GPs not be paying their own staff? Because we know that GPs did do well in the pandemic, in particular in, in relation to the vaccination programme. They should, but there should be a mechanism to ensure that their staff aren't left behind. And uh, we can't, we, the government need to lead on this and the minister needs to make sure that that happens, absolutely, oh. without a doubt. David? Yeah, listen, I, I support the fact that those in on the front line in healthcare uh, will get this payment because of the high risk nature of the work. I would have included family carers. In fact, we in Sinn Féin made it very clear from the get-go it should not be a payment for every worker in the country. It had to be directed at those who are in most high-risk environments and I would agree with the Minister in relation to those in who were redeployed from daycare centres. But also if you look at carers, they lost uh, respite care, uh, access to daycare centres for the people that they look after. Uh, they had to, to, you know, an extraordinary job. But what I would say as well to the Minister as well is... There are also long-term sustainable solutions for all workers that need to be put in place very quickly. A statutory sick pay scheme needs to be put in place, a living wage. If you really want to look after those in the front line in retail who are on low pay, then a living wage is what we should be putting in place as quickly as possible. So while the €1,000 bonus for those who made extraordinary efforts in high-risk environments is welcome, and we welcomed it, uh, there's also long-term uh, solutions that need to be put in place more okay. sustainable more durable uh, as well and one final point okay, is no, I'm going to leave that there I'm going to leave that there because we really were okay. time is time is against us and I do want to get on to the issue of the Leaving Cert because it's, it's a major issue and time is pressing for Leaving Certers as well now an advisory group on planning for those uh, exams is due to meet again in the coming days amid continued calls from student representatives for a hybrid Leaving Cert this year and meanwhile we have a Labour Party petition for a hybrid Leaving Cert uh, receiving all almost 10,000 signatures to date and uh, Sinn Féin, of course, bringing a private member's motion to the Dáil on this issue next Tuesday. But if this model, this hybrid model, gets the green light, will we have enough college places to meet the demand? Um, Jim Miley, Director General of the Universities Association, joins me now. Uh, Jim, you're very welcome. Good afternoon, Katie. Uh, answer that question for me. If the hybrid model goes ahead, will we have enough college places? Well, I think there's a real challenge with this. I think, firstly, you know, we would say the leading, leaving cert needs to be changed. We need exams and results a lot earlier, and we need more continuous assessment and to reduce the overbearing dominance of the final exam. But I think for this year, we have a particular challenge. And I, like, I think it's understandable in the survey that students would prefer the hybrid option. But there are consequences if we repeat what was done last year. Uh, firstly, we saw an unprecedented grade inflation over the last couple of years. That meant that Many students who got their required grades for particular courses didn't get a place because a lot more places had to be allocated through random selection. And I think it's important to remember that that applied not just to high points courses, but indeed to a range of other courses. And, and that's, that's fundamentally unfair. Secondly, I think the, the hybrid system last year led to the Leaving Cert results being three weeks late. It was well into September before many students got their offers. 
And that meant that, you know, because of those delayed offers, the induction or orientation of first year students was seriously curtailed because other students were already back in the system and there wasn't the staff capacity to deal with it. But secondly and crucially, student accommodation, which is, as we know, there's a serious crisis in accommodation, but it made it almost impossible for first year students and their families to find that accommodation. So what we would say is that that students looking for estimated grades are, are saying that they want that on a, on a fairness argument, but the consequences of that will be to create other forms of unfairness that could be even worse. So we would say we should return to a more normalised grade, grade pattern and it's hard to see how that can be done with the estimated grades process. But are you working, though, on the basis that you may again be facing more grade inflation and you may be trying to find more college places for people? Well, I think there will be more college places anyway. So we know there's an extra twenty five to 30,000 students coming into the system because of, of demographic uh, population growth uh, over the next 10 years. So on, on, in an average year, we're getting three to 4,000 extra students anyway. So we, we already have a, a challenge. We have a bottleneck. But what this estimated grades process is doing, it's exacerbating that already very challenging bottleneck. I mean, we've, you know, there are discussions underway uh, for, for medical places at the moment, for example, uh, and there's a real challenge of trying to create enough places to train the doctors and nurses uh, that we need. Okay. Uh, 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 and you know, government policy is now that we're going to increase those places uh, 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 as we come out of COVID. But there's, so there's a, there's a real challenge on that anyway uh, in a normalised situation. But, but I think if, if we put the estimated grades process on, onto that, it creates that extra uh, bulge that I think c- could make the thing entirely untenable. I think there's another okay, let me just put sorry, sorry, let me just put that, uh, Jim, sorry to cut across, but I want to put that exact point to the Minister, that, that if we go down this road, that we could be looking at an untenable situation at third level. Um, Katie, what my belief in relation to third level, I welcome the fact that we're putting on more places, particularly in the medical sphere, because we need an awful lot more people coming on board from OTs, physios and speech and language therapists. But I also think there's an opportunity here for third levels to look at how they deliver education. And when I talk about that, we talked earlier on in relation to employment and and the hybrid model. We also need to look at the hybrid model of delivery of education uh, as well. Like it's unfair to talk about um, the student accommodation. That has always been an issue there and something that Minister O'Brien will be addressing in the delivery of, of housing for all. But what we have at the moment is um, more spaces, more places are being created every single year. Uh, and this year's, whether whatever way the model of the Leave search is done, I think third level will also have to look at how they deliver um, uh, that form of education. And we also need to look more at the, the placements within the third level. And finally, I think what's really welcome in this year's um, CEO form is what Minister Harris and Minister Collins has done in relation to having uh, the apprenticeship model on there. So as we give choice to people that it doesn't all have to be through a third level model. OK, but, but we've got students facing into their mock exams now uh, in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, they're now wondering, God, are these mock exams going to be carrying, you know, so much extra weight now if we end up with calculated grades and this is all that they have to go on. 
uh, do you know, t- when are they going to be told what is happening? Because is it fair to be putting them under this level of pressure? This surely should have been sorted out weeks ago. It's not, Katie, to be honest with you. I have a daughter myself doing the leave insert, so I'm in the thick of it. Uh, and um, so much so, I've had a number of conversations with Minister Foley and she was very open last week at, at our parliamentary party meeting um, where she explained to us that, that there's ongoing engagement and the Taoiseach has said that, that, that this won't be a drawn out process, that there will be a decision made on this very, very soon. Duncan Smith. Yeah, look, I was part of a Leaving Cert class in 2001 that was impacted heavily by industrial action. Um, but that was in, the, and an awful lot of people were impacted. That was in the halfpenny place compared to what Leaving Cert students this year, last year, and indeed the year before have had to go through. Uh, so the Leaving Cert is a system that functions, but it's not necessarily a system that works. And there's been calls for 20 years plus for it to be changed and it to be moder- modernised. It has taken uh, what we hope will be a once in a lifetime global event for that to be challenged and brought into focus. And we can't lose that. The hybrid model is a student first approach. It's the only fair way to proceed. Uh, our education spokesperson, Ayanna Reardon, has been saying this very early. We're we're still in January. There is time. As Jim uh, said at the very start, the first thing he said was it's a challenge. Challenges can be met and can be overcome, but we can't be protecting the institutions of the CAO, the Department of Education, uh, the third level institutions. It's students we need to be putting first. David. Well, yeah, I agree. This has not been a normal academic year, obviously, for Leaving Cert students. And we did see the survey as well from students themselves that they want the the option of choice. I think it should be given to them. Uh, We have a dull motion, as you know, that we will table on Tuesday calling for precisely that. And I hope the government will support it. In fact, just move on on the the spirit of it and the implementation of it. And Jim is right to say that there is a correlation between uh, what has been proposed and places. And there was issues last year. But that's a separate issue to some degree. We do need additional places and there will always be competition in areas like medicine, for example, no matter what you do. But there's a different conversation that needs to be had in relation to we have a shortage of GPs, for example, a shortage of nurses and we need to increase training places anyway. Okay, okay, we're going to have to leave that there and I'm sure we will hopefully uh, get more developments on that in the coming days. Uh, But there we'll take a break. Tweet at Saturday RTE. Now, the Deputy Government Chief Whip Brendan Griffin has said that the Champagne Party at the Department of Foreign Affairs during the strict lockdown of June 2020 was sickening for people. Let's have a listen now to what Brendan Griffin said on Kerry Radio. What happened in the Department of Foreign Affairs was completely wrong, in my opinion. And I remember June 2020 was a very bleak time. We've seen across the political spectrum a number of different events and circumstances where the rules have been completely flaunted and it really is sickening for people to see that. It really is so disheartening for people who are trying very hard. People can be excused for inadvertently breaking the rules or for you know making a mistake that they didn't realise was a mistake, but where there is effectively a two fingers to the rules, that's a two fingers to the people as well, as far as I see it. Um, Minister, two fingers to the people? Um, inexcusable is what I would the word I choose to use it Katie Do you believe that um, Simon Coveney has further questions to answer then in relation to this Um Yes, is the answer to that, and but also the, the department, like as Brendan has said there, and he's in the intro that you have done there. Like I can remember June twenty twenty as well, and it was a a, a a very grim time. And to be honest with you, um, having a champagne reception in any department at that point in time, I know over the Department of Health where they were worked tirelessly twenty three hours, twenty four hours a day, it was far from champagne they were having. Is an internal report into this good enough? <sighs> 
Look at uh, an internal report conducted by who, within where. Um, does well, it's currently being else? conducted by the Secretary General, the current Secretary General. Yeah, but you're th- th- still within the same department, Katie, and we know the answer we'll get. So, like, I, I, I would be one for openness and, and transparency, and that's me is not open and not transparent. Okay, so you're saying that's not good enough. That has to that has to be an external report. Yeah, it has to be. But at the same time, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it has moved on like from time, like what lessons has to be learned. It's not just that department, but all departments need to take a, an understanding. It was at the highest level of a secretary general uh, at that point in time um, that took a photograph uh, and facilitated um, Champagne being within it. Um, sometimes it's not all falls at the at the foot of the minister either. Let's be clear about that. It's people that are paid in positions to ensure that their departments run properly as well. That's the question. I'd be asking. Okay. Uh, is that the question you'd be asking, Duncan Smith? Yeah, it needs an independent investigation. I mean, we know at the top levels of the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, when you're at ambassador, sec gen level, political director level, all the jobs are swapped around. So mates, investing mates, does not work and is not the way to go. It was a stupid and sensitive thing to do. And I think what angers people the most is that over the course of this pandemic, they've seen events that have had politicians, uh, civil servants, uh, people in this organisation, RTE, uh, you know, these are the elites of society, whether we like it or not, they are. And uh, what has really uh, hurt people is it, it really got to this in this together philosophy. And it's been a testament to the Irish people that their resolve is held when they've seen these events take place at regular intervals over the course of this whole pandemic. Um, David Cullinan. Yeah, any review needs why, to be... Why didn't, we, why didn't you jump up and down about this 18 months ago? 18 months ago. When when this picture was posted and then taken down from I Twitter. Didn't see it. I didn't see it, but over the last couple of weeks and months we have been raising it and you know it's it's the slowness of the minister to respond is the problem which is why the minister for foreign affairs has found himself in in hot water in relation to it. So any review needs to be independent, but equally the minister does need to give a full and frank account of what happened. He needs to come before the Oroctus committee, but and also does he do that he before, before, before this all. report? <clears throat> I think he can because you know obviously I don't accept that this internal review is going to be enough. Uh, we've heard that the minister has a similar view uh, on the programme, if, if I've heard it right, uh, and, and others in opposition have said the same. So if there's no confidence in an internal review that's independent and transparent, then the minister is ultimately accountable. He should come before an Oireachtas committee and should come before uh, the Dáil to give a full and frank account. And obviously the notion of champagne parties when there was a huge amount of suffering and distress and difficulty and challenge for people is obviously not, not acceptable. Okay, and just before we we finish up today, I just want to touch on um, that issue of the Waterford uh, search and rescue helicopter and and the retention of the base there with this new uh, contract for search and rescue going out to tender. Uh, You met with other South East Iraqis members to discuss concerns in relation to this, uh, this, the future of this base. What's the latest on that? I I did. I I convened a meeting of all of the Iraqis members in in the South East and we met and it was a very constructive meeting. My understanding is that the three party leaders in government are supportive of four bases remaining. The difficulty here is that it's at the pre-qualification tendering process and the documentation referenced three helicopters at a minimum where there is four. So 
obviously there was a potential for loss. We're hoping that we can meet as a group, as a delegation, the Minister for Transport, and when we get to the proper tendering process, the formal tendering process, that the specifications and criteria would very clearly state four bases. I think that will allay concerns and it's a hugely important service, as you know, Katie, for people in in Waterford, Wexford and elsewhere. That tender is due at the 26th of January, isn't it? The pre-qualification process ends on the 26th of January. When we move into the formal process is unknown, which is why precisely we want to meet with the Minister quickly because obviously there would be difficulties. has that meeting been agreed? Not yet. We're waiting for the Minister to come back and and I think he should meet with the uh, Oroctus members and others. In one way, yeah, just let the Minister in in our last... Just very quickly, Minister. I I suppose really, just to to reassure that the Thonister was asked this question under questions and problems legislation the other day and he did answer that the four bases will be retained. And we can be confident of that hopefully then. Okay, Um, that's all from us for this week. Thanks to my guests and to all of you for listening. The producer today was Mary O'Hagan. Research was by Andrew Fleming. The broadcast coordinator was Elaine Conlon and Sheena Neewil was on sound. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay tuned now for Saturday Sports with Damien O'Mara and John Murray. 